0: This week on the Gravity Podcast, we are re-airing our episode with Bob Roth. You'll hear more about him here in a bit, but I first wanted to invite you to the event Gravity is hosting with Bob as our very special guest. This one-night event will be at Gravity Event Space on Thursday, September 28th at 6.30pm. That's Thursday, September 28th at 6.30pm at the Gravity Event Space. It's free and it's open to the community. If you are a new meditator, if you are curious about meditating, or even a longtime follower, all are welcome and we would love to have you there. For more information, check out Gravity Columbus on Instagram and I really hope to see you there. Bob is incredibly accomplished, a phenomenal human being. Proud to call him a friend and really honored to have him come to Gravity to join me for this
1: event. Look at the meditation as a medical intervention, not as some crazy thing, but Just look at the data. Great. Well, we are here today with
0: Bob Roth. Bob is one of the most experienced and sought after meditation teachers in America. For nearly 50 years, Bob has taught transcendental meditation to many, many thousands of people. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Strength and Stillness, The Power of Transcendental Meditation, and the CEO of the David Lynch Foundation, a global nonprofit which has taught meditation to more than 1 million at-risk adults and youth in 35 countries. Bob also directs the Center for Health and Wellness, which brings meditation-based wellness programs to Fortune 100 companies and small businesses. Bob is the host of the iHeart Radio podcast, Stay Calm, the Sirius XM radio show, Success Without Stress, and is a frequent speaker at the Thought Leader conferences such as Google's Zeitgeist, Aspen Ideas Festival, and Aspen Brain Institute, Global Wellness Summit, Wisdom 2.0, and Summit. And your podcast. (laughs) And now my podcast. Well, it's really an honor to have you here. I'm a big fan of what you're doing. And uh, TM has been a huge part of my life. So
1: uh, welcome and thank you again for being here. It's It's an honor to be with you, Brad. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you.
0: Yeah, good. So Bob, you know, as we spoke a little bit before we got started here, we've really been trying to get our listeners to see the full life journey of successful people in the world from all walks of life. And um your journey to where you are today, I know, is is been a a full and beautiful journey. And I'd love for you maybe just to kind of start out by sharing a little bit about kind of your early childhood and kind of your family environment
1: that that you grew up in. Well, thank you. I uh, was born in Washington, D.C., October 10th, 1950. And I my father was a World War II, and this plays into the story, was a World War II vet. He was a medical doctor in the front lines in uh, Europe and um, came back with some my mother told me later, some serious trauma. Moved out to the San Francisco Bay Area in 1953. He took a job at the VA hospital in San Francisco. I grew up happy, happy childhood. You know, was sort of Marin County, north of San Francisco before anybody knew what Marin County was. You know, fancy schmancy place, but then it was just across the Golden Gate Bridge. It was an Eagle Scout camped hike. And then in the early 60s, my family started to get much more interested in politics. And we talked about politics all the time. And it became very clear that if one had been given something, then one needed to give back. And at an early age, I was interested in public service. And uh, when I was in high school, I worked for Senator Bobby Kennedy. It wasn't that I was a Republican or a Democrat. I just liked the idea of young people getting together in a peaceful way, working for change. When I saw Bobby Kennedy speak in June 1st, 1968 at the San Francisco Civic Auditorium and was profoundly moved. And I thought, oh, okay, this is how we're going to make a better world. And then four days later, he was shot and gone. So I went off to college in October 1968, which was crazy town. Um, with a desire to become a, a lawyer and then become a United States senator and work to change the world, so from an early age, and I thought the way to change the world would be to, through legislation, change rules and laws to give equal opportunity for everyone. Once they had equal opportunity, that was up to them to make do of it. But I, I never felt that the, a, a person's access to health, happiness, and the pursuit. By, now, pursuit of happiness, key word there, should be minimized because of the color of the skin or religion or gender or something.
0: Yeah, certainly uh, applicable to what's going on today in the world. And I want to talk to you about that. I want to just kind of back up a little bit, though. Um, you know, what struck me right away, and, and I know you will kind of maybe circle back to the piece about your father and the trauma. But but I'm just curious, you know, elaborate a little bit on what it was like to live In the Bay Area to grow up in Marin County before it
1: was what it is today. You know, the funny thing is, growing up, my parents were from Washington DC, and my dad was from Detroit. My father actually put himself through medical school during the Depression, delivering the Detroit News. So he he was very much shaped by the Depression. My mother's family had been well to do and then lost it all during the Depression. So there was a sort of a sense I grew up with hard work, and you never know what's around the corner. Uh, Marin, they used to talk about th- that there was no humidity. I didn't even know, Brett, I didn't even know what humidity was until I think I went <laughs> to uh, Amherst College in 19, like when I was 20 years old for a summer intern sort of ship. So I, and they never traveled to the East Coast because they didn't want to go humidity. So it was ideal. I mean, I lived at the, right in my backyard was this Mount Tamil near Muir Woods. And so every week I camped and hiked. And as I said, I became an Eagle Scout by just only because by byproduct of just being outdoors and it was safe and it was good. And I was a big fan of the San Francisco Giants. And I remember when my dad, this was my first sort of, sort of a sense of what other people went through. My dad used to come into my bedroom, you know, on a Saturday morning and he'd say, Bobby, call me Bobby, I'll take you to see Willie Mays and the San Francisco Giants at Candlestick Park, but I just need to stop and read one x-ray. He was a radiologist. Read one x-ray at Fort Miley VA Hospital. So I'd say, fine. And then of course, there's no such thing as one x-ray. And so I ended up, Brett, sitting in this uh, hall for hours because there was one emergency after the other. And just by myself as a 10-year-old kid, and then I saw all these veterans Mm. broken men, and some women, mainly men, uh, in wheelchairs all day, all day, all day. Mm. And that, he also volunteered at San Quentin Prison. Mm. Where he would go there one day a week to read x-rays. And so then I went with him to that. So it really opened my eyes to trauma and suffering. And then my family's mission or sense that really it was an obligation to give back it was very transformative for me at an early age.
0: Yeah. Oh, I can imagine just having that kind of embodied into you, um, seeing that, you know, uh, propelling you into wanting to be of service um, It makes a lot of sense and, and pretty incredible. Um, and, and your dad's trauma, talk a little bit about that and, and, and how maybe
1: that was propelling him, I'm imagining, into the work that he was doing. Well, you know, the funny thing is, is if you know about the veterans from World War II, greatest generation, never talked about anything. Mm -hmm. You know, even the term for post-traumatic stress disorder then was battle fatigue or Mm -hmm. shell shock. And I remember once as a kid going through some old boxes at the top of a shelf and in the boxes were uh, maybe 10 medals that were from, obviously from the war. And I showed it to him. He did not even want to see them. He had been Mm -hmm. awarded many medals and he just, it was like blocked out. So because he was a retired captain and with honorable discharge because of his injury, we would spend time at the Presidio uh, Army Base or in San Francisco or else Hamilton Air Force Base, which was an air force in north of Marin County. So I grew up around veterans in the military Never said a word. I didn't even know that there were issues, although he had a very severe physical war injury. He, he had a bad injury and he had to have his hip fused. Mm-hmm. And actually, he came back early from combat because of what happened. And the surgeon general, this he told me, did the, oper- the surgery on his hip and blew it and it got infected. And he was in a full body cast for nine months over the summer months in Washington, D.C. With no air wow. conditioning, I mean wow. the suffering.
0: And and, and uh, tell me a little bit about kind of then, you know, you 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 have that experience as a child. You're growing up. You're seeing Willie Mays, which is a candlestick, which is pretty cool by itself. Yeah, sanctuary um, for ten <laughs> year old kid, it was a shrine. It was a shrine. I mean, complete. i mean, no wonder you're <laughs> such a San Francisco sports fan. But uh, you then go off to Berkeley. Tell me a little bit about what that was like, you know, being at, at Berkeley in, in the
1: 60s. Interesting place yeah, to be at interesting me, time. You know, it was, it was, again, it was this, dis- I was a fish out of water. I mean, I wasn't a druggie and I wasn't a hippie and I wasn't into violent. I, I, I just had this sort of almost this naivete of, well, let's just work together. Let's get educated let's, and let's change the world. And so it was incredibly polarizing. And we know today the first year in college is tough enough as it is. But then you take that with rioting in the streets and army tanks parked outside my door because of the uh, riots over uh, the Vietnam War and coming home from class one afternoon and hearing behind me this like clapping like steps and I turn around and it's 30 police with their billy clubs raised chasing me because I'm a student. There was such (laughs) polarization. And fortunately I outran them, but it was, and tear gas. And so here's this kid. I I sort of like feel sorry for the kid when I look back 50 years ago, trying to get an education, trying to figure out his way in the world, realizing early on there that politics, I didn't want to go into politics anymore. I realized that politics was never going to heal the soul of the nation. I thought my dad was a healer never going to heal the soul of the nation. It was too much div- division back then, terrible. Now it's getting like that everywhere. So that, that was very tough. And, and I remember working with my dad wanted to have a good work ethic, even though I was going to school full-time and everything. So I worked at a Swenson's ice cream parlor. I don't know if you have Swenson's in Columbus, but the Swenson's, do. Ice-, we do. Yeah. Swenson's yeah. ice cream parlor. And I remember there would be riots on Telegraph Avenue. And then the, when it was all done, like 15 minutes later, there'd be a line of police and some of the rioters standing outside, waiting in line to get uh, ice cream before they went home. And I just thought there's something crazy here. And so in figuring out what I wanted to do with my life, because I still wanted to do something, my mom was a school teacher. I thought, well, I don't want to be a teacher because I still want to, and you can change the world one at a time. But I thought, well, I could write educational curriculum. And how about if I write educational curriculum, get a doctorate in that, and then equip children, particularly in the inner cities at that time I was interested in, with tools that they could use to help them navigate what I saw even back in 1968, an increasingly uh, stressful, traumatic, and, you know, imbalanced world. So I, I shifted over to get an edu- a doctorate in an educational curriculum. I thought, okay, instead of legislation that's going to change the world that way, how about if one child at a time? So that was, that was sort of one of my major moves. And I thought, okay, this, this felt better because I just, I'm a, I'm a person of, I think politics is important, obviously, but my nature of my life is sort of uncompromisingly uncompromisable. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm very... Truthful and the idea of compromising integrity, t- compromising truthful. I could, I couldn't do. It. I know it has to be done, but it wasn't how I wanted to live my life.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm just kind of, you know, hearing you say that you're like kind of very much intellectually looking at the the issues and and your interest and and how to tackle them and moving to areas where you think you can be most effective, is that kind of like in hindsight, that's how it happened? Or were you always kind of, you know, more thinking about this from your, your, your head and your heart combined, I guess is what it, you know, kind of sounds like to me.
1: Well, it's such an, you know, it's like, it's just such a, the difference between nature and nurture, you know? So, mm-hmm. cause I have brothers and sisters who I have a older sister and younger brothers who are also active, but not as sort of passionate as I am. And I think it's just my own nature. I, my mom used to also work, volunteer work at this, they called it for physically handicapped kids, marindale So I would see kids in wheelchairs and really struggling with that. And then if you know Marin County, there's a, a sort of a little enclave called Marin City, which was at the time the ghetto in, Marin's, in Marin County. And I just, I don't know, my sort of sense of fairness and fair play it just didn't seem right. And that was from an early age of somehow making things right. And I thought it was politics. And so I thought it was education. And then, you know, meditation happened.
0: Yeah, let's let's talk about that. I remember you sharing a story at the event I was at in New York about kind of how meditation popped into your life. Uh, can you talk a little bit
1: about that? Yeah. Sure. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a great questions. I mean, I speak about them, but I don't, little bits, but I don't really get a chance to reflect on them in one whole like this. I am a very skeptical person by nature. I love science. I'm not into new age. I don't like woo woo. I don't like Ooga Booga. I like, I like big ideas. I like boundary breaking ideas. I like, you know, physics and astronomy. And I, I mean, I love. Uh, just big ideas, but it has to be grounded for me in something. And I think that's, I'm my father's son because he was quite a brilliant mind and and a scientist and a doctor. So I'm pretty, you know, back to, let's go back to 1968, 69. I'm pretty stressed. My first year in college, disorienting, just not trying, just trying to get my, bearings. I mean, in high school, I was the guy, you know, the most valuable this and all that sort of stuff, which didn't really mean that much, but I, at least I knew my path in high school. Oh, I'm going to be a U.S. Senator. And I, I, I had a column in my high school newspaper where I just sort of recounted all the things that were wrong with the world classic 17 year old. And the title of the column was called the Gripes of Roth. So, <laughs> and so That's there was like, great. yeah, just you know one column after another. Who's doing wrong? Who's doing wrong? But um, you have to publish that book at some I, point. No, someone told <laughs> me a publisher said that I could sell, I could <laughs> sell it sight unseen with just the title, and they said just come up with two hundred things that you don't like and just yeah. <laughs> but. Um, so I I heard about meditation. And there was a lot of crazy stuff going on. And I think about it, Berkeley at the time, and I'm like this one sort of normal guy. And I didn't want to get into a sect or a cult and a religion. And I was I didn't want nothing. So I didn't know what to do. And then as it often happens, there was one person who I was working with at Swenson's. He, was, he had a master's in landscape architecture. He was taking some time off. And he was right? He was like down to earth. He was like a normal guy, but a good, good guy, you know, not like uptight, good guy, open, interesting. And there was a calm about him. And I remember one time I came there at 10 10 o'clock at night because you get free ice cream. And I remember going back at 10 o'clock at night to get some ice cream. And Peter had just come out, his name was Peter Stevens, just come out and he looked sort of particularly sort of good. And I said, where were you? He said, I was back meditating. Now he's meditating later than you used to usually do. But I said, well, tell me about it. And he said, eh, I don't want to tell you, but you can go and find out about it at a, at a center. And I said, you know, I'm a really skeptical person. I don't believe in all that stuff. And he said, just go and hear the talk. So I went and heard the talk and a person, you know, gave a basic talk about TM, that it's easy and effortless. You don't have to believe in anything and it's good for health. And afterwards I stood up, it's about 50 people in the room and I Very smug, 18-year-old, know-it-all kid. And I said, well, how much of this stuff, but I didn't use the S word for stuff. I said, how much of this stuff do I have to believe in for it to work? And the woman who was the teacher, I mean, giving the talk, held up a piece of chalk in her hand, one hand, and she had another hand palm below, and she dropped the chalk into her palm. She said, you don't have to believe in gravity for gravity to work. You don't have to believe in this meditation for it to work. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay. I'll give it a try. And and
0: just curious, you know, when you when your your friend came out from his meditation, what was your prior understanding of meditation if at all going into it? Did you have uh, some had,
1: awareness of it? No, I two things had passed my mind. There was a cousin who had come when I was still in high school and living at home had come and visited for 3 days and he was talking about meditation. And then when I was just talking about it, and there was no receptor site in my brain. It, like, I, it, didn't, it was like somebody said gobbledygook. You know, just, mm-hmm. it didn't, didn't nothing. And then my second quarter or something at Berkeley, I was taking an astronomy class. And I was cramming with this friend who said that she had just been instructed in, in transcendental meditation. And I just remember sort of going, what? What, what do those words mean? Because I liked her. I thought she was great. They, there was instruction and transit. It's like, again, didn't mean anything. So then it was many, like six, so it didn't, didn't have any feeling mm-hmm. one neutral. It just, there was no bad or good. It just, I, I didn't have a place to put it. But mm-hmm. then when things started getting tougher and more stressed and I wasn't sleeping well and I was falling behind in school and I, need, I, I knew I needed something so I could sleep better at night, so I could concentrate more, and so I could just also have some internal sense of uh, equanimity because this, every day there was three thousand, you know, police and fire, and mm-hmm. so I needed something. Yeah. So then, and, then when he said the words, then it went, oh, huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I'm
0: curious a little bit about. I mean, there's a, a bunch here that I'm I'm excited to. Dig in with you, you know, but I'm curious about kind of this this grounded, this you know, kind of you know practical, you know, the, like you said, you're the only person on campus that's you know not a, a druggy hippie, you know, and you know you you said that you don't really love woo woo, you know, and, and it's an interesting thing because it seems like that uh, kind of way of being, you're, your maybe your your how you were raised um maybe it's just who you are but this this kind of like you know a more uh, grounded you know a, approach to life has really been important for you in kind of uh, differentiating yourself as you are in uh you know, what some would consider to be woo-woo. I mean, you're you're, you're coming from, right, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you 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 come from, from uh, Marin County, from Berkeley, you know, in Columbus, Ohio, I was hiding that I meditated for the first 10 years that I was doing it in my car, yeah. you know, <laughs> from people at work, you know. I mean, and this was not that long ago, you know. So it's still pretty woo-woo, but, you know, it, to you, it, it just... It, maybe it's the gravity thing it's it's really
1: pretty grounded too, right? Well, it was such an interesting thing because it was such a f- well, first of all, there's a lot of reasons, let's be honest why the word meditation has so many bizarro connotations, whether you're I mean I'm probably more of a Columbus, Ohio type of a guy than I'm a marine, marine county type of a guy or Berkeley. A- I have a midwest sensibility about myself that everybody says, but there's a lot of nutty stuff mm-hmm. just just but you can have a lot of nutty doctors but that doesn't mean that there's not a med- one doctor that's really good or a lot of crazy medications that doesn't mean that one isn't really good. And so I I I was never one to be overly influenced by other people's opinions about things. I made up my own mind. I wasn't you know after like my freshman year in high school or something going along with the crowd wasn't as, or maybe it was my junior year, wasn't as important to me. But when I learned it in 19, June 28th, 1969, is when I started, I remember I went back to my... I didn't want to tell... My sister was also a student there at Berkeley and I needed a place to meditate. And she was living with her boyfriend and she had a deck in the backyard. And I didn't want to tell her what I was doing because it, it seemed a little strange. So I remember... Going and meditating on the deck in the backyard, and that's the last time I ever did that because I got bit by about a hundred mosquitoes. And I realized, Bob, just you know, to your sister, you don't have to hide anything. But it was a long time for before meditation slowly started to gain some credibility. But for me, it was my own intuition, my own sense that this was physically very real, very relaxing. When I learned it, I didn't have to believe in anything. They didn't ask me to change my religion or my lifestyle. My teacher didn't do anything. My teacher said, here's a technique that you can do on your own. Once it takes an hour a day over four days to learn it, it's yours. You can do it however, whenever you want it. And it's going to help you with your health. And it did, Brett. It was so relaxing. And immediately I started sleeping better. And immediately my mind, i like I could remember, when I'd read a, a book on whatever it was, history or physics or literature, or whatever I was studying in the first year, second year, basic stuff. Uh, my mind was like, a I just held on to things. And then I just kept doing it. And then I got more interested in, well, if this is so good for me, maybe it could be useful for someone else. And I remember having the thought after I learned, uh, maybe this is the tool I want to bring those kids. Because that had been my thought: I'll get a degree and I'll get a, I'll become mm. a, I'll get a doctorate in in uh, curriculum development, and then I'll bring tools to kids. And yeah. I remember thinking, almost puzzled: Oh, maybe this is the tool that I'm going to bring those kids. And that was, you know, 51 years ago.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because I think you know it's. It is starting to really unfold as I'm hearing you tell the story, you know, moving from from legal to education and then the meditation as a tool to to help educate. I mean, it, it's really unfolding. And I'm wondering just to kind of like last on this you know piece, the the woo woo piece, I have a a story with meditation that you know, was like as simple as, seeing a, a poster on a on a light pole uh, on campus that caught my attention not having any exposure to meditation and and you know 20 some years later, you know, having, uh, you know, had it really influenced my life uh, profoundly, the whole set of circumstances to me does feel pretty woo-woo. It's hard for me to explain how a flyer caught my attention and yeah, changed yeah, my yeah. life, right? And so when
1: you- Working when you in look, a Swenson's ice cream parlor at 10, in the, 10 at night going to get some ice cream and some guy telling me something that I'd never even, hadn't even resonated in me ever. Yeah, so
0: just elaborate on like, how do you make sense of this? What is your worldview, your belief around how these things are showing up for us in our lives, knowing that you're as grounded as you are in this in this um, you know technology?
1: Well, you know, when you look back on your life, I think we all of us do. There are just sort of moments where you meet a person, or just you know, it's a sort of a serendipitousness of the whole thing. Oh, you say, how'd you meet your wife? Well, I was at a this and I was on a blind date and that didn't work and then somebody came by and then introduced me and then bam, so uh, when they say when the when the when when the time is right the doctor appears or the teacher appears or something when when you're ready, and I guess I hadn't been ready the times before it crossed my path, but I don't know what do you think? Tell me your your take on that. Well, how I mean, do I, you explain I, that? How do you explain you
0: know? I think it's 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 um, probably more interesting to hear
1: your thoughts than mine. But <laughs> I don't I, think so. I'm fascinated. Uh, uh, since you. Yes, you're Columbus. Oh, wait a minute. No, Columbus, yeah. Ohio. You're a college student twenty years ago. You're walking across. We're, yeah. All right. You're, you listen. To the audience would love to hear. Just answer this one question, and then we'll go. Back yeah.
0: Yeah. No. I mean, I I believe that there's a divine intelligence that's um, beyond our understanding, and it's always working and. Total perfection, and you know, it's um, nothing is really an an accident. That things aren't um, lost or wasted, and you know, they they show up, and we're grabbing them as we're ready. And um, I think that's kind of what what you know explains my whole life. That it's all been there for me to learn and and for my benefit. Um, Even the stuff that was really really challenging um,
1: served me just
0: you know, beautifully well over over time.
1: And is that divine intelligence, is that part of a Christian upbringing? Is it just your own
0: sense? No, it's, um, you know, I was raised, uh, you know, in a Jewish household, culturally not as much kind of observant you know, really never engaged in the religion myself, never really learned it, understood it, you know, just kind of went through the motions, celebrated with family, holidays, you know, that kind of thing. It's really more of a, in fact, I tried on being an atheist for quite some time uh, in my early adult years. and, and, And I did because I really just couldn't make sense of, you know, some of the religious pieces or the idea that there was something more to it. But you know, through a number of different life experiences and 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 work that I've done, I've kind of grown to see you know this this kind of uh, intelligence at work in my life. and it's just a belief system now that i that I have
1: and and feel and experience as I move through the world. That's very beautifully put. I think from my perspective, I think that there's two things. There is that, whether you say it's divine intelligence or n- laws of nature or nature or whatever you know cosmic intelligence i think my role has, is to be awake to take advantage of the opportunities as they present themselves that i was given those opportunities early on but when i heard about meditation and it just didn't it, it didn't resonate the thing came to me but it didn't resonate i didn't i didn't i didn't hear it and i think for me I I it's a matter of just being awake and capitalizing, taking and taking advantage of the gifts that are offered, whether you call it divine intelligence, cosmic mm-hmm. intelligence, nature, natural law. Right. I do I do believe that I don't believe it's all chaos. I'll put it that way. Yeah. For sure. Yep. Good.
0: Well, let's talk, you know, to me, part of that divine intelligence really is that I think we're all a part of it, that I don't think this is like this you know, man with a beard kind of thing, right? I, I think, you know, we're all part of that divine intelligence and um, everybody. And and yet there are some people that really stand out in the world that really um, make a massive difference. Uh, Maharishi is one of those people, somebody that I believe you studied with, you know, as you started your journey in TM. Maybe you could elaborate a little bit on on the influence of Maharishi in your life.
1: Yeah, I think, I think Maharishi, first of all, a background is he was a physicist, trained as a physicist in college in, in India, trained with the top physicists. Then he had an opportunity to, t- to, you could say, study with the top professor, the top teacher of consciousness, of, of meditation, of the brain. And he spent 13 years as sort of the number one student. And then when his teacher passed away, this young man, took a year or two to sort things out. And then he learned from his teacher, the simplicity of transcendental meditation, which was in contrast to the difficulty or the arduousness of, and the philosophicality of so many meditations. And he came to the United States in 1959 and started talking about it and teaching it. And he was a monk. So he had, you know, long hair and traditional garb. And one of the first things he did with his science background, bread is he sought out researchers from UCLA Medical School, from Harvard Medical School, and other places. And he said, you know, you should research this meditation. It's going to be really good on so many levels. And he said, besides, look at the way I'm dressed. Nobody's going to believe me. And then he added, but they shouldn't believe me anyway. It should stand on its own. So his background and his vision as a person really resonated with me. Talk about a big thinker, but um, also rooted in science, and um, I first met him in 1970. He was doing a, a one-month uh, graduate level course in Northern California at Humboldt State College, and that was an eye-opener because he presided over sympos- symposiums on creativity and consciousness where he had Nobel laureates in physics and biology, and he also had a uh, rabbi, top rabbi, uh, Rabbi Levine from Seattle, and priests and imams and they were all talking about what's their inner reality of life what do we hear from the religious in the vocabulary of the religious and what do we hear in the vocabulary of the science and i just was just just astonished by all of that i loved the hugeness of the thinking and his nature was sort of like a granddad kind strong firm wise and then a few years later, I went and studied and I spent several months becoming a teacher of Transcendental Meditation. And then I it was in 1972 and I went back to the San Francisco Bay Area for many years and taught. And then periodically over the years, I'd have an opportunity to be around him for courses and, and uh, see his interaction with these very wise and brilliant people. To such an extent now, it's interesting you bring up this question because I've been asked by a I wrote this one book on TM called Strength and Stillness, which did really well. And now the publisher has asked me to write a biography or about Maharishi because nobody knows who he is. Time magazine Mm -hmm. recently said that he was the one back in 1967 when they taught the Beatles, he was the one that changed the culture in the world. He brought meditation, he brought yoga with him, he brought you know, healthy eating, all came at that point. So the irony of it all is the publisher said, nobody knows who this person is who had such a huge impact in the world. And if they know anything, it's to his association with the Beatles. And that was during, you know, one week or two weeks in India in 1968. So there's a big book to be written. So that's what I'm going to work on. Yeah. And and
0: I'm curious, you know, kind of knowing the Maharishi uh, Beatles and other Kind of important figures you mentioned. You yourself have really been the celebrity teacher or the kind of you know influencer teacher. uh, Tom Hanks, Oprah Winfrey, you know Katy Perry, Russell Brand. The list goes on. You know how how has that been important beyond just kind of the you know the celebrity part of it? How is working with those individuals or others that are really of Influence I know you're you know teaching to Fortune 100 companies. You know tell me a little bit about kind of the methodology and working with that group of people.
1: First of all, it all happened. I never sought it out. I, I remember telling someone back in you know 20 years ago, I, I made the point that I had, other than Willie Mays, who I met getting a baseball sign for my mother in 1984. <laughs> <laughs> when I went to a books, I mean a si- baseball signing thing, I'd never met any famous person, and I never really had any desire to do it, except Willie Mays. And then, because the foundation was started by David Lynch, who's a great filmmaker, then and he a, was a very well-known meditator, people would go to David and they'd say, "Hey, I'd like to learn to meditate." So he'd introduce me to them. So. Um, whether it was Laura Dern or I mean, the list goes the list goes on and on and on. All these different actors. So I would teach them, and then on that level of society, they all. It's sort of like if you become the cardiologist to the stars, or you become the you know the Pilates teacher to the. So I was sort of became the meditation guy, mm-hmm. and because they don't know where to look. And the, two points on that. The first point is I was very fortunate because the people who decided they wanted to learn to meditate were. Generally, really good people. So I never came across really obnoxious, awful, loudmouth. They, they weren't they didn't come my way because they weren't interested in, in meditation. So that one thing that was nice. And the second thing was, and I'm it's what you know, and I'm sure you've seen it in your own life when you've crossed paths with well-known people or super wealthy people. You can have all the money in the world, you can have all the fame in the world, you can have all the power in the world. But if you have a trauma from growing up when you were a kid, it doesn't touch it. Mm -hmm. And if you're worried about a son or a daughter with a drug problem, you can throw hundreds of thousands of dollars and send them to the best treatment programs, but that doesn't mean anything. And if you can't sleep, just because you can't sleep, you can have a lot of money, but how many sleeping pills are you going to take? So what I realized early on with these people when I looked into their eyes other than the fact that a whole lot of people know who they are and they have a much bigger house than anybody. I just saw the same fear, the same insecurity, the same sometimes you know, dire straits that I see in anybody. So it, it, didn't, it was a, a life lesson that you know we're all in this together. And yeah. Uh, I, I,
0: it's it's really uh, good to hear, and I and I want to kind of just maybe click on the trauma piece. We talked a little bit a little bit about it early on with your dad, but I personally have seen the benefits, and I know there's just outstanding work being done in various programs, specifically using TM to attack PTSD and other trauma. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing with the foundation, the programs, maybe how people can get involved, get engaged, and, and you know, some of the success that you're having in tackling the trauma piece? It's a real important thing for me that I'm, I'm passionate about and love to hear more about what you're doing there.
1: It's, uh, I've learned so much. Over the years of working with the foundation and then putting on conferences, and really learned a lot about the brain. And um, so, it's most obvious for us when we look at a a veteran, a young man or a woman who is in harm's way, and then something horrible happens, and then they're traumatized. And then you hear they come home, and a car backfires, and now they're right back in Fallujah, or they're right back in, and they're Vi- often violent or they're, they can't sleep for months on end and their irrational behavior and drug abuse. But actually trauma for a lot of people, more people, there's probably a million people have million veterans with PTSD. Tens of millions of people who grew up with what's called adverse fi- childhood experiences. And these are traumas at an early age. They say from, the, uh, from conception to the first thousand days can be the most traumatic in that young, that young soul's life for their whole life, most formative. Because think about it, there's no protection. A child that is neglected is more traumatic, far more traumatic for a child to be neglected than to be physically hit. Think about it, you're just this infant and you're left alone with helpless for hours on end. Very frightening. So the point on all of this is these adverse childhood experiences, what they call them, build up and start. we start having the experiences of trauma at an early age, PTSD. We also see that obviously with the people who go into combat. In either case, what's happening in the brain is there's a part of your brain, which is right near the deep middle of the brain, right near your brain stem, which is called the amygdala. And the amygdala is the fire alarm in your brain. It's the fight or flight part of your brain. It's a part of your brain when you feel threatened, and all of the energy goes to your muscles to either run or fight. Well, that's fine if you're being chased by a lion for a minute, or you're in combat and you're in a firefight, but then the idea is it's supposed to settle down. It's not supposed to stay that way all the time. You're not supposed to have be hyper aroused like that. Well, it in these days it doesn't settle down for the veteran or the even the family of a veteran. A- Amygdala is always hyper aroused. And that leads, leads to violent behavior. leads to insomnia, drug abuse. And what it does is it shuts down, there's a part of your brain called the prefrontal cortex. Is this too much science here? Is it, no,
0: no. Keep going. I love it. Yeah. Part of
1: the brain called the prefrontal cortex. It's the size of your fist and it's right behind your forehead. And that's the executive functioning in your brain. And that's the part of the brain that um, is a rational filter against impulsive decision. It's the part of the brain that tells the amygdala to you know be quiet. Well, when the amygdala is too hyper aroused, it shuts down the prefrontal cortex. And now you're just consumed by this irrational behavior. Now we're going to go up to the veterans because that's a big passion of mine because of my dad and upbringing. What they do with the VA, well-meaning, they'll give them pills lots of times. Prescribed pills, five cents a pill. Here's a pill to slow you down. Here's a pill to allow you to fall asleep because that's a side effect of the pill. And then here's a pill to help you go to the bathroom because that's a side effect. And here's a pill to combat your depression because that. And it becomes this cocktail of, and the the veterans generally feel like zombies. Or the other option they have is talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, which can be fine, but it's once a week and it's talking. Well, now enter transcendental meditation or tm which by the way veterans love because the origins of transcendental meditation it's not some hippy dippy thing it was it was the warrior classes used this in ancient times mm. so enter transcendental meditation and what it does almost from the get go calms the amygdala almost from the get go strengthens reestablishes the prefrontal cortex there's a horm- stress hormone called cortisol which um, is secreted by the adrenal glands that sit on top of the kidneys when we're worried about something, and a good night's sleep will drop cortisol by ten percent. Twenty minutes of transcendental meditation drops it by thirty to forty percent. So, in other words, Brett, long answer to a question, but it's an important one. This one simple technique creates, as a byproduct of just experiencing a feeling, feeling of inner peace and relaxation. This constellation of changes and benefits that they don't see from any medication or anything else. So I think it's just, I'm hoping within a few years it'll be part of our healthcare system. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and I I wondered, you know, and maybe this kind of will bring us to current events, but I'm I'm curious, you know, how you see TM's role in being able to tackle trauma at the pace that trauma continues to be built into our. Our society. I mean, if the first thousand days are are critical, as you say, and I agree with you, you know, how do we get on top of this issue? It it seems to be at times, you know, overwhelming, and that you know we can't necessarily uh, get at it fast enough. And, and maybe you know, you want to speak to some of the stuff that you're doing, circling back to education. Um, and i'm imagining that you know might be a, an important role in, in getting on top of it
1: well, you know in medicine there's uh, intensive care and then there's preventive <laughs> so tm can be used in both it can be used as intensive care so someone comes back from combat or now we're doing a lot of work on the with the frontline doctors and nurses and therapists and janitorial staff that are on the front lines in these COVID hospitals, you know, COVID hospitals who are suffering from PTSD. So we offer it to them and it has a wonderful calming effect. But really, if you want prevention, really it has to start at a young age. And it's really, you know, people say these days, well, I'm not so sure, you know, does meditation belong in schools? And they, you know, they're hesitant to ask, to act. And then What are you going to do? And they don't do anything. Brett, we are, and I'm not being an alarmist here, in danger of losing an entire generation to stress. The number two cause of death in America among teenagers is suicide. The number of kids who take their own lives who die because of opioid addiction: 18 kids a day. That's more than who was shot at that at that horrible shooting at that school in Florida. One shooting. Seventeen. So what we're doing with the David Lynch Foundation is we're working with school districts, with you know educational with psychologists, counselors, um, government people to sort of, again, I go back to this point, look at the meditation as a medical intervention, not as some crazy thing, but just look at the data as a medical intervention that can be incorporated into educational situ- settings into military, into healthcare settings. You know, I work with professional athletes anywhere, homeless as just another tool, but an important tool in our toolbox to deal with this trauma. And yeah. The res- yeah. No, I, I think it's it's so- I'm getting going here. Sorry, I'm getting a little- That's okay.
0: Yeah. No, it's it's just that it's so, I, I could get going with you. It's so simple. That's the thing that I think people- um, it's the brilliance of it. And it's it's also, you know, it's the brilliance of it for so many reasons. But the the simplicity of learning, the simplicity of the practice, it's such an easy thing for people to do. Most people, a lot of people I know, they say, ah, meditation, it's hard. It's not for me. I can't sit still. But, but the technique is so simple and the benefits are so profound. If you could just kind of make it a part of the curriculum you know from an early age the life curriculum the school curriculum i, I think you know it really could make a, a and it is i mean it's making a difference already but uh, i know we're, we're a little tight on time and i want to uh, switch gears because i want to make sure we talk about current events you know you you've seen rioting throughout your life and and generations and decades and you 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 mentioned early on that you've um, had a passion for for making sure that that everyone was educated and that there wasn't bias towards anyone you know in in any area in, in, in the world and in your life uh, talk a little bit about what's going on today you know as we see protests around the world rioting um you know coming on the uh still in the in the heels of a pandemic talk about this time in the world and and how you're seeing it and and what you're doing and and how you see it compared to prior similar situations. By the way, you're a really good, are you sure you're
1: not a professional
0: interviewer? (laughs) You're really
1: good. (laughs) I'm a rookie. I'm just getting new to this. No, no, you're really good. You have a good voice for it. Somebody one time said, Bob, I have a great, I have a great face for radio.
0: (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, Howard Stern is another TM guy always says that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So
1: um, (laughs) the thing that's happening is, The PTSD that we're seeing in the lives of individuals, which is that inability to sleep, that irrational, sometimes violent behavior, that inability to have sustained a conversation, ability to to see another person's point of view, anxiety, depression, substance use disorder, a whole complexity of, of disorders, that we're now starting to see in society as a whole, where the public health of America, public health of our cities. We're sort of caught in the midst of that. There's research that shows that if a child grows up in a war zone or in poverty or in high crime areas, fear that the prefrontal cortex doesn't develop. Now that child may never see, may never see any violent act, but just being in the environment, the atmosphere, the climate of trauma and stress, that child begins to behave that way. It's called complex PTSD and also contagion stress where it, we just absorb it. They did a, a, a study that showed a mother and a father could be fighting. And you could ask the mother and father if they were fighting and they might deny it. And they could check the cortisol of the child who was in the other room. And during that fighting, the cortisol spiked in the child. Hmm. So it's contagious. So what we're looking at is, I think, like you can't make talk sense to someone when they're out of control, angry, in a rage. You sort of have to let them settle down. I just go back to the work of the David Lynch Foundation. I really believe that what's missing is this tool in the toolbox. When we talk about becoming a healthy individual... We think of things from the neck down, eating properly or exercising properly, but we leave out the brain, we leave out the mind. And you could look at TM as a non-religious, no full philosophy of just allowing the whole brain to come online. So while there's so many things, Brett, that needs to happen, right now the focus of the David Lynch Foundation is to to raise the funds, because we're a nonprofit, we raise the funds to do these large-scale phase three clinical trials that will meet the requirements so that this technique can be offered as part of Medicare, so that it can be offered as part of your health insurance provider, so that it can be offered as part of an, an employee assistance program. The need is there, all we need is, and the data is there in its second stage level, but it needs to go one step larger, like you would approve any medication for being covered by an insurance company. And then, and then suddenly, It's available to everybody. And then suddenly you're going to start seeing uh, changes because real significant changes in people's behavior patterns. There's more to it. If we had more time, there's research that shows when large numbers of people do meditate that it has a collective effect. Mm -hmm. Then a large number of people, 1% of a population in a city meditating then the brain waves and the, the, the heart disease and the high blood pressure of the people who aren't meditating goes down. And again, that's not some booga booga woo woo stuff. It's just we influence our environment, good, bad, or right. otherwise. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Great. And I know we're uh, almost out of time. I want to just give you an opportunity to share any kind of final thoughts or direct people to how they can get involved in and, and get enrolled in, in what your work and in the foundation. But before you do that, I've got to know, just give me a minute on, is David Lynch as like cool and amazing as I've always admired him to be? Like, tell me what, what it's like to
1: have the opportunity to work with David Lynch. He's one of the finest human beings I've ever met. He's a man of, uh, uh, I mean, creativity beyond anything. People think he's going to be this dark, brooding, foreboding person. He's not. He's, he's great. He's fun. He's creative. I mean, he obviously thinks on his own. But the thing that's great about him is he's the most fearless person I've ever met. Like, I'll be watching a scary movie with him. You know, really something. And I find myself looking away. And he, it's not that he's en, enchanted by it. It's life. And there's no part of life that's discomforting for him. You know, the, the, the little mouse grows up according to laws of nature and then dies and then decays according to laws of nature. It's all laws of nature. For David, there's no side of nature of life that he has to avoid. Very powerful in his own way like that. And I find him, uh, he's one of my best friends. Amazing. And yeah, he's, he's great and yeah. creative beyond belief. Oh, I think he's just one of the, the greatest. Um, Next time we're both
0: in LA, I'll, I'll bring you to meet him. Oh, I would love that. I would love that. Well, I really, really appreciate you taking the time. It's an honor to have you here.
1: Um, any final thoughts you want to share with the audience? First, first of all, if you think, oh, I've tried meditation and I can't do it. I can't do it. Well, there's lots of different types of meditation. So don't assume that you tried one and it didn't work. Transcendental meditation, is in, which we've been talking about, is incredibly simple and natural and effortless, and anyone can do it. And if you feel like you could use do with some more energy and sleeping better and be a little bit more resilient and handle the crazy stuff that's coming our way, look into it. It's not a luxury anymore. I think it's an essential tool in the toolbox to survive and thrive. So yeah. I would just say, do your research and, and, and look into it. Yeah, and I'm just going
0: to add to that that um, I'm also happy to be a resource, and we're very fortunate to have uh, Carrie Davis and Matthew and and um, a TM Center here now in Columbus at Gravity, uh, where we're um, they're doing teachings and and introductions, and there's a, a great opportunity for people uh, here locally and in the region to access. Um, some, some wonderful people and
1: learn more. So yeah, Columbus uh, should know, you should know you have t- some of the best TM teachers in the country. No exaggeration. You're very fortunate. Yeah, we are. We are
0: indeed. Well, thanks again, Bob. I really appreciate your time and uh, it's been wonderful to hear your journey.
1: Well, I really have enjoyed this. And thank you for the questions. And that's probably the most time I've spent talking about myself in a very long time. So you're a good interviewer. I felt comfortable doing it. So thank you very much. Wonderful.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.